Good morning. I'm telling y'all, I enjoy mornings like this when you smell a little bit of rain in the air. It's cool, and I know it's not time yet, but it gives me hope that it's around the corner. So it is uh, just refreshing to see the seasons change, and it's good to see everyone's face here. So I know a lot of people were traveling last weekend, and there's always a blessing because we get to see some people that come in from out of town, but it's good to have so many of you back and to and to be together. Um, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15, and I would really like for you to open your Bibles or your devices to 1 Corinthians 15. I've got a few verses I'm going to throw up on the screen, but we have some extended readings in the middle of the sermon, and they're all going to come from that chapter, and I really want you to be able to look at the text with me. Um, we're in our Therefore series and studying um, these different statements, these arguments that are made through Scripture that, that I believe... Um, root our thinking so that we can act the way that we need to act and the way that we should. And so we've um, working through several of those. This week we're going to start in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. It was probably, I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago. Chad and I were working at the salvage yard and we were plugging and chugging. We always had a lot of different enterprises going on, and we were trying new things. We had just brought on one of my very dear friends, Wayne. Wayne Newman was his name. Um, and he was kind of starting up this side of our business where he was going to go out and haul in oil-filled salvage. And we knew to be able to do that, we needed a truck that could handle the work. And so we had done a lot of shopping around, and we had finally landed on this particular Ford pickup truck that was just perfect for the job. Now, for a lot of y'all saying engine numbers and all that don't matter, but for a few of you it might, okay? So this was the 7.3 liter power stroke diesel engine. I mean, the best one that Ford ever made, and you can argue with me about that later, but I'm telling you, it was that engine, and we chose it for a reason, and we were excited to have that pickup truck. And so we got it and, and got it rolling, and we were pretty meticulous with the maintenance. And one of the things that I wanted to do was change out the air filter assembly to be sure that it was well taken care of on those dirt, dirty, oil-filled roads. And so I bought a new one, and I swapped it out. And, well, I made a mistake, and I didn't attach all of the pipes correctly, but I couldn't see it. And it wasn't long later that the truck just started running horrible, and it had lost compression, and what had happened is there was a hole that allowed it to suck in some of that dirt on all those roads, and it just sandblasted the inside of the engine. I mean, totally ruined. But, but, I'm telling y'all, we are not so easily discouraged, those of us who deal with junk. And so we were quick to come up with a plan to fix this beautiful truck. And so, the, the engine is big. It's too big for the truck. And so we decided we had the equipment because we bought scrap for a living. We were going to take the cab off of that truck. So we unbolted the cab and we got the crane and we lifted the cab off. And there, there it was, the engine. And slowly, piece by piece, we, we removed the engine from the truck and we took it into our dusty shop and swept all of the dust out and got it clean. And piece by piece, we took apart that engine and took it to the machine shop and they polished up every surface. I mean, it was... It was a pristine marvel of modern engineering when we got this engine block back. We had the heads machined and the cylinders were bored out. And all of that means nothing to most of y'all, but it, it was pretty shiny metal pieces that fit perfectly together. And so we, piece by piece, torquing every bolt to spec, put it back together. I, I mean, 
like no one ever should work in a salvage yard. We were so meticulous with each piece. And we got the engine back together and carried it back to the frame. And we got it bolted in, and there it was, ready to go. And so we called the crane operator over, and we tied slings on the cab, and we put the, put the slings up in the tines on the crane, and he lifted it up, and we were getting ready to sit it on. And instead of pushing one lever, he pushed the other, and the tines opened on the crane when the cab was about 15 foot in the air. And there was just a crash. And everything on the cab was bent. And it was the most disgusting feeling, I think, that I've ever felt. I mean, we had spent hours working on this pickup truck. Thousands of dollars buying new parts and and machining. And and had this vision of what it was going to be when it got back together. And there it was in front of our eyes, just ruined like the rest of the junk all around us we should have known better than to try to have nice things at the salvage yard you know I think that feeling that we experienced in that moment is actually a feeling that most of y'all can relate to in one way or another for instance this is a smaller way but have you ever gone on Pinterest and seen some beautiful arts and crafts project and then exerted like a full day trying to duplicate it and ended up with something like this. <laughs> Similar feeling, maybe not quite as devastating, but, but you know what I mean. You put a lot of work into this project, and it just didn't turn out like you thought that it should. Maybe some of you have failed in bigger ways than that. Maybe it was a mistake like we made that cost thousands of dollars. Or maybe some of you have experienced failures that were even bigger. Um, maybe you've devoted a, a lifetime to a company just to get laid off before retirement. Maybe you made a, a wrong investment and lost your life savings, a lifetime of effort and planning down the drain. And, and you look back and, and there's this feeling of, of disgust for all of the work that you put in and the waste that it seems to be now that you're looking back on this mess. You know, sometimes the fear of failure prevents us from even getting started on a project. I would never try to make that cake because I know what it would turn out like. Sometimes failure keeps us from stopping when we know better. So I know there's people that would come up with that terrible product and then they would devote another day trying to make it look right. Um, that's the sunk cost fallacy. But, but both of those attitudes towards failure stem, stem from this. We, we are so afraid of working in vain of pouring time and effort into something and then not reaping the results of it, of, of pouring our efforts into something that at the end of the day doesn't matter and doesn't make a difference. We hate that feeling. We try to avoid it at all costs. And I'm afraid that sometimes when we look at the work that we do here, the work that we do in the spiritual realm, we're in danger of misreading what's going on around us, of feeling like maybe our work is in vain. Because you see, it's not often that we see results. Sometimes it can feel like we're losing. I mean, we look at the coworkers around us. um, We look at the struggles that our, our kids may have. We look at the culture that surrounds us, and it seems like we're just pouring and pouring ourselves into all of these people and these, and these things and these systems that we are a part of, and there's times when it just doesn't feel like it's making a difference. And I think that it can become easy to, 
slip into habits of doing less and less because we start feeling like our work isn't making a difference. Like maybe we're wasting our effort. Well, I think we need to pause and we need to ask ourselves what God has to say about that. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, the last verse in all of 1 Corinthians 15, we read this. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, he says several things that we should be. We should be steadfast, immovable, and abounding in the work of the Lord. And then he, he roots it in this attitude. He said, here's the attitude that you should take towards it. You should know that your labor is not in vain. You know, I think most often when we are struggling to be steadfast and immovable and struggling to do the work that we know that we need to do as Christians, when we're struggling in that regard, it is most often because we believe that our labor is in vain. So how do we know that it's not? I mean, Paul, Paul didn't just throw this out here. He didn't just say, hey, fix your thinking. Paul gives us reasons why. And the therefore tells us that this admonition, this encouragement, that the reasons that you can know and have confidence that your labor is not in vain comes from the argument that he's made before. And I believe it is the whole of the chapter 15 that he's talking about and referring to. I want to back up to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. At the very beginning of the chapter in verse 1, Paul kind of shifts gears into a new argument. He's been talking about how we should worship and how that should be organized and what it should look like. And then at the beginning of verse 1, he says, Now, I would remind you. And this is Paul kind of shifting gears, if you've ever driven a stick shift. He was in one gear, and now he's shifted over to the next gear, and he is starting a new argument, okay? And, and he says this, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So this is how Paul begins this, this new section in 1 Corinthians 15, and you'll see that there's some similarities to what we see at the end in verse 58. So if you look closely, you see that he introduces the idea of the gospel, and right alongside of it, he introduces the same idea of, of standing firm and holding fast. And that sounds like very similar language to what we see showing up in verse 58. So Paul, really in true preacher style, says, this is what I'm going to tell you. And then he tells you, and then he says, and this is what I told you. And it's that section here in the middle, I think, that really roots us in these attitudes. Okay? There are several different things that he's going to walk us through. He's all, it's all about the gospel, but I think there's four different elements. The first thing in verses 1 through 11 Paul tells us exactly what it is. Okay? And then he's going to move on to the next thing. He's going to then tell you what it shows us. Um, and then he's going to talk about how it happens. And then he's going to talk about what it means. And together, I want us to actually walk through each of these things so we can see how he develops his argument, how he wants you to see and think about these things. I'm not going to read every verse in these sections, but we're going to read quite a few of them. So we're going to start in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. What the gospel is. 
Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So Paul lays out very clearly here at the beginning. He says, we're talking about the gospel, and when I say the gospel, I'm talking about this thing that you know happened, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. And he doesn't just say that it happens, okay? He, he gives them evidence. He says, you know that it happened, not because I said, but because hundreds of people saw it. Some of these people are still living. Probably some of those that were listening to this had spoken to firsthand witnesses of the resurrected Jesus Christ. This was a historical reality. And Paul starts his argument by saying, the gospel is Jesus resurrected, and we can know it to be true because because people have seen it and testified to it, and that's what I've been telling you about, and that's the first thing that I want you to remember. Jesus died, and now he is not dead. And then he goes on in verse 12 to say this. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? But if... And now he lays out this hypothetical. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, but, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy destroyed is death. So Paul, Paul makes this kind of satirical argument. He says, I don't know why you would say that, that the resurrection isn't a thing. I mean, if the resurrection isn't a thing, Christ wasn't raised from the dead. And, and everything that you are doing, everything that we are doing this morning is silly. Like, this is nonsense. This coming to the pew every Sunday and celebrating the things that we do and singing the songs that we sing. I mean, if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, this is a pitiful existence that we live. But then Paul says, but, but he was. 
Hundreds of people saw him. This is what I've been preaching. These are the things that you've talked to. We have evidence for it. Christ was raised from the dead. I mean, that's the core tenet of our faith. And in believing Christ is raised from the dead, that means some things for us. That that demonstrates some things to us. That means the resurrection is real and it happens. That means that we serve a God who has power over death. That means so many things. And, and maybe it didn't all unfold all at once. Christ came first. He was resurrected first. He's the first fruits. And then there's going to be a day when those who were in him are going to be raised. And then the final step of the process is this ultimate final defeat of death. Death is destroyed and it's, and it's delivered over to God. So those, that, is, that is what the resurrection of, of Jesus shows. Now, that leaves us with some questions. I think a lot of y'all have questions. I have questions, and they did as well. We skip down to verse 35 and read, but some will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? That's a valid question. I wonder that thing too. He says, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God, God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same. There is one kind for humans, another for animal, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised? Imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. In other words, Paul is saying, you need, to, you need to think about this maybe differently than you do. Some of you are thinking right now of people who have gone on before you. And Paul says, you can think of them as, as a seed. I mean, you know how that works. It, it really doesn't look anything like what's going to come after it. The essence of it is there. There's a connection between the seed and what is to come. But we plant it in the ground, and the seed changes, and it grows into something that is so much more magnificent than what you planted. And Paul says, that's the way that this is going to work. I don't have all the details for how it's going to happen, but that's how the resurrection is. Uh, while I may not know exactly, I can be confident in a few things. We're going to be raised with a body that's not perishable. We're going to be raised with a body that exudes glory. We're going to be raised with a body that has a different type of power. We're going to be raised in a body that is a spiritual body. And while I don't know what that looks like, and I'm thinking based on this, Paul wasn't exactly sure what it looks like. There are so much that we can be confident of. In verse 49, it actually says this, Just as we have, been, have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. In other words, he says, right now we have, this, we have these bodies that bear the image of sinful Adam. But, but our resurrected bodies are going to bear a different image. Our resurrected bodies are going to bear the image of the perfect Christ. And that's the thing that we are looking forward to. And then he shifts gears and he tells us what it means. Let's start in verse 50. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. 
We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality and when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come the past, the saying that is written, death Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't really know what commentary I can add to that. He says, you're all headed for the kingdom. The kingdom of God is not, does not exist of, of, of perishable bodies, but imperishable. You don't get to inherit the kingdom of God cloaked in mortality. But there's going to be a day when, when you are raised and you are changed in form into these immortal bodies. And at that point, you are prepared to be part of this everlasting, eternal kingdom where the sting of death is no more because it's been defeated. And all of that stems from the resurrection of Jesus. So we take a step back and we say, in summary, what is chapter 15 teaching us? Well, first of all, the resurrection of Jesus happened. And knowing that it happens means that there's going to be a resurrection for all of us. It's going to happen to you as well. Now, there are some things that we don't know about it, but we can be confident that it will be a different and immortal existence when we are in heaven, and it will be in the kingdom of God where death is defeated finally and forever. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In other words, Paul says, don't, don't be bamboozled into thinking this is all that there is, because if you do, you're going to start feeling like, like all of the things that you're laying up for the future, all of the work that you're doing, you're going to start feeling like maybe it's in vain, but I'm telling you, it's not. I feel like sometimes if we could see Paul when he was dictating his letters, he was probably jumping up and down, being like, no, 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 it's not like that. That's not how it works. Jesus is raised from the dead. That's our evidence that we're going to be raised. God has the power over death. There is so much more than we see in this mortal life. Church, it may feel like it at times, but your labor is not in vain. This is where history and theology intersect in, a, in our very real and, and tangible lives. There is existence beyond the grave, and that means the things that we do matter. Death is defeated beyond the grave. It will not be another temporary existence, so our labor isn't in vain. On the other side of mortality is immortality, and there God reigns through Christ. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at Matthew six nineteen through 21. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. How do we know? How do we know that it's worth laying up those treasures there? 
because of the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus allows us to be steadfast and immovable. What does that look like? Well, being steadfast and immovable. Both of those share the attribute of being something that's kind of passive or defensive, I think you could say. So my mind thinks of a a foundation under a structure, a a storm shelter, a bunker, a, a mountain, really. A mountain. You look at the mountain and think, ain't no one moving that thing. All right. And that's, the, that's the, the idea that he has here of steadfast and move. But I think more importantly is how steadfastness ties to the next admonition, abounding in the work of the Lord. Because that admonition is, is, not, uh, is not defensive, it's offensive in nature. That, that has this idea of moving forward. And so it tells me that our, our steadfastness is maybe less like a mountain and more like an aircraft carrier. We are called to, to move steadfastly and unwaveringly, immovably forward in works of the Lord. And while I believe we are called to do everything as if we were doing it for the Lord, Colossians 3.23 tells us that, this passage, I believe, is specifically referring to our works of ministry. The works of the Lord, sharing the gospel, telling people, about the hope that we have. In Acts 20, 24, we read, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. One of the works that we do is, is good for others. This is sprinkled all throughout the teachings of Jesus and the epistles. Galatians 6.10 tells us, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are the household of faith. One of the works that we do for the Lord is building up the church. Ephesians 4.11-12, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And really, at the end of the day, I think the last one, glorifying God, sums it up the most. Every Sunday night, we, we recite this verse with our, our children, and it applies to all of us. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works. And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's the work of the Lord. Now perhaps I say it too often, but I believe God has ordained you as the means through which the world will first be exposed to the specific truths about Him. Church, when you believe the right things and understand that not a drop of your labor for the Lord is futile, that it empowers you to live in a way that saves souls and changes the world. Listen to me closely. You will not change the world by voting or through politics. In vain you labor if you think that's going to fix things. You will not change the world through social initiatives. In vain you labor if you think that's going to fix things. You will not change the world through anything that you write or say or do. And in vain you labor if you think that that will be your legacy. There is most definitely 
a lot of vain labor. And we waste a lot of time on it. But, but, the work of the Lord, rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, and all that that means as we look to eternity, that, that work is not in vain. It's never wasted. It's forward-looking, and it allows us to be steadfast and immovable, abounding in his work. If you are not in Christ, you cannot expect victory, and every ounce of your labor under the sun is vanity and striving after the wind. It is wasted, it is worthless, it is meaningless, it is devoid of hope if you are not in Christ. Perhaps that's you, and you know exactly what I mean. Perhaps that's you, and you don't feel it yet, but I can assure you that you most certainly will at some point, and I would encourage you today to do something about that. If you believe Jesus was the Son of God and believe in his resurrection, then you have all of the information that you know to attach yourself to him and live a life of hope and meaning that is not in vain. So we stand here ready to take your confession to baptize you into his name, and to partner with you and walk forward towards heaven. If you would like to hear more, we would love to study with you. Or if you have fallen away, we are a forgiven people who stand ready to pray with you and walk with you as you recommit yourself to Christ and his hope. Whatever your need might be, the invitation is open. Come forward as we stand and sing.